Amen. Thank you for that worship song, Eileen. And that was from who? Who wrote that song? And what, what, what was he before he wrote worship songs? A what? Who said that? He was a hippie. There's no doubt about it. He was a 60s and 70s. I don't know when he got converted, but he was a hippie. Living for the, looking for the wrong kind of peace, experiencing the wrong kind of love, and using the wrong kind of drugs. And then God redeemed him. And he started using his gifts and talents for songs like that. And he started living a life that was focused on Jesus Christ. And because of his life, other hippies were saved as well. And they worshipped Christ. God can redeem a life. What a beautiful song. God-centered song. Well, this morning we are in the gospel of... In chapter... And we've been studying the theme of Matthew, which is... King and his kingdom. Right. About Jesus, the king. And Matthew's introduced us to this king in the first chapter. He introduced us to the genealogy of the king. And then he told us about the birth of the king. And then he told us how the wise men came and worshipped this king. And then he told us how this king was baptized by John the Baptist. And we, he told us how the father from heaven affirmed this king and the Holy God, the Holy Spirit affirmed this king by descending in the form of a dove after the baptism. And then he told us how Jesus had victory over temptation, which made him fit to be king. And when we finish this passage, I believe in verse 11, studying the temptation of Christ, we left Jesus in very good hands. Because it said that then the angels, after the 40-day fast and after the temptation in the wilderness, the angels came and ministered to him. I don't know exactly what that looks like. I can't say I've experienced that before. Uh, Perhaps I suggested perhaps that meant they cooked him a nice steak from the cows of Bashan in the northern parts of Israel. Out in in, uh, the land, I don't know, a foot massage, a shoulder rub, a spiritual, whatever it means. He was in very good hands after he proved himself fit to be king and they rejuvenated him. Now that he has proven himself triumphant over evil and fit to be king, he begins to do what he is held back from doing for about 30 years. And that is he begins to launch himself forward into the ministry that God had for him. And that's what we're going to be looking at over the next several sermons is the beginning of Jesus's ministry. And, of course, he'll be in it, will be in it, the whole Gospel of Matthew until the very end. But we're going to look at verses 12 through 17 this morning. And I want us to consider two themes that I think dominate this passage. And that is the theme of God's timing, his sovereign timing, and also just... Uh, The power of the light of Christ. So let's read these verses. Matthew chapter 4, we'll begin with verse 12. Now when he heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in in Capernaum by the sea, in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. 
the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death on them. A light has dawned from that time. Jesus began to preach, saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus is also a preacher, just like John the Baptist. He launches into his ministry by sharing the word of God. He has the same message. And the message is for the purpose of preparing people for the kingdom of God, because the kingdom of God is literally at hand. It is here and it is coming and it continues to come and arrive. And Jesus, like John, prepare the people for this kingdom by encouraging them to repent of their sins, because the king of this kingdom is a holy kingdom. Many of the songs that we sang in worship this morning focused on the holiness of God. This is a this is a different kind of kingdom than the world has ever experienced. It's another worldly kingdom. And the only way into this kingdom is through holiness. And the way to holiness is by repenting of our sins and putting our faith in Christ. So John the Baptist pointed to the lamb who would take away the sins of the world. This is a message of preparation into this kingdom. You don't enter. Uh, doesn't matter how much money you have. You can have bars of gold. It won't get you into this kingdom with this king. You could have a winning personality and a winning smile, all kinds of talent, all kinds of things that the world craves and longs for. And it can get you places in this world and it doesn't get you in the kingdom of God. The way you get into the kingdom of God is through righteousness, which is comes to us through faith in Christ and also with a heart that loves God. And Christ can give us a new heart as well. So that is the message of preparation. The message, because if we are not prepared for this kingdom that is at hand, it is among us even today, then we will face the wrath of God. In this kingdom, God has enemies. Uh, We do not want to be one of those enemies. But there's also something in this passage that Matthew wants us to know, and it, it pertains to the timing The sovereign rule and reign regarding the use of time in the ministry of Christ and really just how God uses time and rules over time. Because in verse 17, it says from that time, Jesus began to preach. Time is very, very important. God uses time. In other words, before this time, it wasn't time for Jesus to say these things or do these things. But now that a certain event has happened in real history and time, it is the moment for Jesus to begin these things. And what we learn is that Jesus, his whole ministry, his whole life, essentially, he is stepping in in time. He is living and acting according to this providential timeline that God has for his son in his ministry. As a matter of fact, in Mark chapter 1, verses 14 through 15, here's how Mark puts this same passage. Now, after John was put in prison, Jesus came into Galilee preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God and saying, the time is fulfilled. The time plays an important part. So, in other words, now that John is in prison, that was the trigger. That was the historical event that law that launched Christ into this time of 
ministry. So, so what do statements like this mean? I mean, what, what, should, we, what should we be thinking about or, or listening for as believers as we think about time? Well, there's a principle that we can take home, and that means that God has a schedule. God runs on God's time. If you've been to Guatemala, you've heard of such a thing called Guatemala time. And that means, I mean, it's nice to have a watch for your own sake, but don't think that they're going to go by what time it says something's going to start or end. It's Guatemala time. Well, God has God time. He has his own clocks and his own schedules. And there are turning points in history. There are turning points in our lives Things that didn't happen before, but now all of a sudden they're happening and vice versa, because God is the God of time. He he manages it. He rules over it. In the last temptation of Christ, we saw that one of the temptations was pertaining to time. And Satan was telling Jesus, look, you can reign and rule over the nations that you want to rule over. And you don't have to wait and you don't have to go through all the pain and suffering And through the way of the cross to get there, I will put you on the throne right now if you just bow down and worship me. It was a shortcut. It was a matter of time. And Jesus said, no, I am fully submitted to my father, including the timing of things. And that would just be unloving. And the answer he gave was, it's about God alone. We are to worship God alone. We are to serve God alone. Life is about God alone. And I love God. In essence, and so I will not submit to that. So we find the importance of time. We find the importance of um, waiting upon the Lord. Waiting is a hard thing to do, especially for an impatient person like myself. But we don't want to run ahead. We don't want to lag behind. We want to step in time, step in time. I. That came to my mind. And what comes to your mind? Step in time. Mary Poppins. And it was how Dick Van Dyke taught them how to dance. You just step in time. And there's truth to that. What is dancing? It's not just walking or running or jogging. You are stepping in time or rhythm. There's a rhythm to it. And Dick Van Dyke could, could dance too. He could step in time. And so in, in, in essence, we want to dance with the Lord, so to speak, as far as in being in rhythm with his time and his ways for us and not trip all over our own feet and make a mess of things. So Jesus begins his ministry exactly at ministry o'clock. Yeah, I made that one up. I thought it was pretty clever. Ministry o'clock. There's times for us to do things. It's God o'clock, ministry o'clock, whatever. Because the Lord is that. John MacArthur says, the sense of timing in the life of Jesus Christ is absolutely amazing. He was always on a divine timetable. He had in his heart an eternal clock clicking away with sovereign hands, ticking off his destiny with unfailing accuracy. He moved gracefully in accord with a divine timetable, everything at its exact moment. You might recall the passage in Galatians 4, 4, where the Apostle Paul says that Jesus came or was God sent Jesus into this world at the exact moment, the exact time. Actually, he puts it when the fullness of time came, God sent his son. 
So that there are time is kind of like there are not times to, to, uh, times to do things and there are times to do things. Good things may be withheld. Because of this divine time clock. And of course, if you read the Gospels, we hear constantly Jesus will say comments like this. My hour has not arrived yet. We're not going to be premature in this. We're not going to run when it's not time to run. We've got to just be patient because things are unfolding in a perfect way. My hour has not arrived. Matthew tells us that Jesus catches word that John is in prison. He didn't use his divine powers to read people's minds. And he just all of a sudden knows he was told the human way. And that is through news and from one person to the next uh, word could get around fast, even in that culture, just like it gets around fast with or without the Internet these days. And he finds out, you know, perhaps someone said, have you heard the terrible, tragic news? John is in the slammer. John has been thrown into prison. And that's a good question asked. Well, why was John thrown into prison? It's a little bit of a sermon within a sermon, but I think it's an it's an important thing to know. Why was John thrown into prison? Because the last time we spent some time with John and we looked at John, John had a thriving ministry. He was a powerful servant of God. He was preaching the word of repentance and people actually were repenting and coming to faith. And they were going to the waters in droves and being baptized. Hearts were being just like prophecy was being fulfilled in John's ministry. The hearts of the fathers were being turned back to the children and the children to the fathers. And, of course, more importantly, hearts were being turned to God. And the people loved John. They loved him so much that the Jewish leaders were afraid to cross him because they thought the people might turn against us. They loved this guy so much. And really, it wouldn't have mattered anyway if they crossed him because John was John. And John was a passionate prophet. And he just said what needed to be said. Uh, he wasn't scared of the leaders. He, he put them in their place in the, in the sense of kingdom place. This is where you stand as far as God's concerned. So it wasn't that he was scared of them. He said what needed to be said. That's what prophets do. And so if it wasn't the Jewish leaders of the Sanhedrin that threw John into prison, then who did it? Who finally had the guts to take this guy and do something with him? Well, that would be Herod, the Tetrarch. That would be Herod. The, the son of the Herod the Great that we read about in Matthew 1, who had all the babies killed in an attempt to try to snuff out Jesus the King, Christ the newborn King, competition, a competitive ruler. Boy, it's a long story. The Herods are a complicated family, and I could spend a, a few sermons just telling you about the Herod family. But I'll try to make it as short as possible. But their family was an absolute mess. As you can imagine, Herod was a madman. It all ran in the family and they were all like that, basically. Uh, there, there was jealousy. There was rage. There was murder. There were perversions of all kinds. There were incestuous relationships. There was wife swapping of all kinds. And all the kind of stuff that we watch on a regular basis on TV or on the Internet today. Don't be surprised that if one day you see an HBO special series or documentary on the Herods because it's all the kind of smut that people like to learn about 
today. But what happened here is that Herod Antipas, the son of Herod the Great, who was a tetrarch, an actual ruler of this this region, he goes to Rome and his brother Herod uh, Philip happens to be there. Is this where he lives? And he goes to Rome. He seduces his brother's wife and talks her into divorcing his brother. And he takes her home with him and marries her. Her name was Herodias, and she was just as wicked and immoral as the rest of them. And she was, um, she was actually Herod's, the great's grand, um, granddaughter. So it gets kind of messy and complicated in there. But that's what happens. And so here's John the Baptist. And John the Baptist, you know, he doesn't really care much about the latest fad, this, that, and the other gossip. John's just John. And he, what he really cares about is God and the kingdom of God. That's what his life is is all about. So if he misses out on certain things, it doesn't bother him. He just calls it like it is, tells it like it is. And John doesn't like what he's hearing. He doesn't like the way all this stuff is going down. And we don't know exactly how he knows these things, but he, he knows what's going on with the Herod and with Herod and the family in his little region. And he doesn't like it. He calls it what is is he speaks his mind whenever he gets a chance to speak his mind and he doesn't just excuse it off. Well, that's what kings do. You just got to expect people in power. It just comes with the position. You know, you get power and you rise up through the ranks. You just get certain perks and these are perks with the job. Here's what he says in Luke 19. But Herod, the Tetrarch, who had been reproved by him, talking about John the Baptist, for Herodias, his brother's wife, and for all the evil things that Herod had done. What is happening here? John the Baptist, uh, reprove means to state something that's, that's wrong. When you reprove somebody, you're pointing out or you're stating something that is wrong. So John says to Herod Antipas, uh, you, you are living a wrong, unrighteous lifestyle. What you're doing is absolutely wrong. And he's using the one rule, right, that we learned about in the psalm. He's using God's word as a standard by which to gauge what's right and wrong. And he's saying this stuff here, uh-uh. No, you don't, don't feel good about yourself for what you did. Don't feel like you just accomplished something great by upgrading your marriage or by exploiting this or, or feel like a man because of these kind of things. This isn't getting you anywhere. This is wrong. Don't like this. Don't feel good about this. Don't be happy about this. So John is bold and he is blunt and I would venture to say pretty intimidating with his godliness. And so, of course, Herod is a ruler and he's got to keep face. I mean, you can't just like let your subjects go around talking bad about you and pointing out all your faults. So he has him thrown into prison. And, uh, of course, you know the rest of the story after John is in prison. He has a tragic end. Uh, Herodias, Herod doesn't like what John says. And Herodias' new wife doesn't like what John is saying about this being wrong. And so there's an opportunity for Herodias' daughter. We won't turn there, but you probably know the story. She does this dance, some kind of dance for the king. And it's so captivating. Can't imagine what kind of dance it was, but it was so captivating that and he was so smitten by it that he says, just basically ask me for whatever you want and I'll just give it to your right hand. That's how wonderful that dance was. 
And so Herodias counsels her daughter and talks her daughter into making that one wish, asks for the head of John the Baptist. She didn't like him either. And lo and behold, that's exactly what he gave her. The head of John the Baptist on a platter. That's gruesome. Hard to believe we still have beheadings today, isn't it? Man hasn't changed much. John the Baptist was a herald for righteousness. And what did he do? He died heralding righteousness. You know, he might have seen backwards being out there in the wilderness. Might have seemed like he could care less about the rest of the world. Didn't have an idea what was going on. In the rest of the world, very disconnected. I mean, look, the guy was earthy. He dressed earthy. He ate earthy. But he did have an idea what was going on. He wasn't that disconnected, was he? He knew what was going on in his little side of the world. And he didn't mind speaking against it either. He was there to prepare the way of the Lord. And if it meant talking to a Jew, he talked to a Jew. If it meant talking to a Gentile, he talked to a Gentile. If it meant a king or a peasant, he was going to prepare the way of the Lord. He was going to speak righteousness. And that's what he did. Because in order for people to be prepared for the Lord, they have to know where they've transgressed. They have to know where the line is, where God has drawn his lines and where they stand in relation to it. Hey, am I ready or not? Am I in or am I out. And John did that and he pointed, of course, to the Christ who covers these sins. It would be nice to have some Johns in our society today, would it not? They are few and far between because our society has become more and more confused about right and wrong and more and more confused about what's good and evil. Fifty two years old, I can see it. I mean, when I was a kid, you just kind of knew these things. And now it's like uh, everybody says, oh, is that really that wrong? Is it really bad? Would God really be upset? Or how do we even know? And there's just this great confusion. And then and, and people don't want to speak out against it anymore because of the PC police. You know, it's not politically correct. And politicians and politics that has power behind it. And you can lose things. By saying the wrong thing. And so there's this there's this um, persona or this this power in our culture right now that wants to keep people quiet regarding what's right and wrong. You got to have a lot of guts to do that. We could use some Johns in our day as these boundaries become blurred. Because when we reject the light, we'll talk about this a little while we reject the light. What's the option? Darkness. And when you start walking in darkness, you can't see very well, can you? And so we have people that can't see the lines and the boundaries that God has set in place for man and for this creation. It's a dangerous thing to speak for righteousness. It's a dangerous thing to speak truth when all people want to believe is a lie. It's a dangerous thing to confront a system that you know in one sense is bigger than you. It might seem like you can't do any good. Well, John spoke and not only did he lose his freedom by being thrown into prison, but he lost his life. And it is not unusual. It is not unusual for God's people to lose precious things when we take a stand for truth and righteousness. I know I did. I lost precious things when I took a stand for God and live for God. 
might lose a job, might lose family relationships, might lose your best friend. Things that are important to you in life might lose your reputation, might lose your pension, your salary, your job, you name it. But sometimes God puts us in these positions where uh, in his timing, we got to decide, okay, what's most valuable? I got this and and I like it and, and it's okay to have it. But now I'm put in this position where God's asking me to do this and I could lose this. What's more valuable? Sometimes God puts us in those positions where there are things at risk. John didn't ask for jail and he didn't ask for death, but that's what he got by doing the will of God. And yet it's all in God's timing. That was the event that triggered Christ to begin to preach his message. God's sovereign plan is what? Constantly unfolding before our eyes. Every event triggers another event because it's his story. God is the sovereign ruler of history and it boggles our mind. And yet it's true. Both good and evil precipitate the next act to come in the unraveling plan of redemption. And though sometimes it seems like, what's up, God? Evil has the upper hand. We have to remember as believers what the message of Scripture is. Yeah, maybe for now. But you know the end already. God wins. And that's our encouragement when it seems like evil is getting the upper hand. God wins wins. Sometimes it's evil that wakes up the giant. And this evil that was done to John the Baptist launched the giant, so to speak, Jesus into his ministry. So it might be dramatic. It might be nail biting as we see, well, what event's going to happen? What could possibly come of this? But God is the God of time. And so Now Jesus is on the move. What does he do? He withdraws into the region of Galilee. He goes north, basically, from Judea. Why? Why would Jesus withdraw? It's not like him to withdraw, is it? Is he also frightened of Herod? Is he afraid that Herod might throw him into jail? Or is he he scared of the Jewish leaders, the Sanhedrin? What is going on here? Why would he pull Back, it doesn't seem like a very godly or courageous thing to do. John 4, 1 through 3 says, Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. What's going on here? What has happened is that, look, though they did not confront John, the Jewish leaders did not like John one bit. John called them out. And you don't see any hands up and people up in arms about John being in prison. The Jewish leaders didn't go try to free him. They didn't raise a ruckus or have any kind of protest about it because in their hearts they were like, thank you, Herod, for getting rid of this pest. But the problem is that now that John was in prison or now that John is gone, Jesus is the public enemy, number one, because he's making even more disciples. He's baptizing even more people. Jesus knows this. Their hatred for him is growing. So why does he withdraw? He does not withdraw in fear. We should know that. He withdraws because of timing. Because he knows that if he stays there, they're angry enough at him to kill him. To deter the ministry 
the stepping in time of the plan that God has for him. And so things don't so things don't get out of hand or out of whack, so to speak. He withdraws. He backs off just to keep in time. When the time comes, he will courageously face his enemies. He will not back down and his life will be taken according to the time of God. And yet Jesus even says about that in John, by the way, you didn't really take my life. Just so you know, I gave it all according to the plan. Nobody takes my life. I give it. So if Jesus is living according to God's timing and God has this this impeccable plan and this unfolding of lives, where does that leave us? Well, it leaves us knowing that God has perfect timing for things. He knows our hearts. He knows what's going to happen and what's not going to happen. He doesn't want us to obsess over it. So then what do we do? We just trust. We are left. We have to trust that God knows our needs and our provisions and have faith that in God's good time, these things will come to pass. In the meantime, like Christ, we submit ourselves to the Father's plan. It might mean rough times. It might mean good times. But there's a submission there. So the things that perhaps we're longing for right now, things that... We say, well, that's past due. I should have had this already. Look, everybody else has it and I don't. These things. Things we might think that we deserve. We don't want to grow bitter against God and and be accusing. We want to trust. Time is a commodity. And we want to walk wisely in it. So a good question to ask is, can we, are we submitting to God's timing for that job or for that school that we want to get into, for for friendships, for relationships, for uh, that expanding family that we can't wait for any longer, uh, for some kind of needed upgrade, for success in ministry. Can we wait for success in ministry? Lord, I've been serving you in this capacity for how many months now, how many years now, and where's the fruit, where's the harvest? Can we be patient and understand that God, even when it comes to things of ministry, has a time. Some people plant, some people water. God calls the harvest. A submission. So Jesus shows that we can submit to God's plan and that it is honoring to the Lord. So we see God's timing, but the second thing that stands out in this passage is the light of God. Verses 13 through 16 talk about a prophecy that was fulfilled regarding two of the 12 tribes of Israel, Zebulun and Naphtali. It says that uh, it was spoken by Isaiah, fulfilled by Christ. Now, what was it? That these two tribes in the, the, the way of the sea, which was Capernaum, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light, verse 16. And for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. Now really, this could fit under God's timing as well because the time was fulfilled for the light to dawn. It was a fulfillment of prophecy. But we want to talk about the light because that is the fulfillment of 
prophecy. Jesus traveled there not just to withdraw from the leaders, but also to fulfill a prophecy that's approximately 800 years old by the prophet Isaiah. Jesus, he's saying, Matthew is telling us, Jesus is this great light. Jesus is the light that has dawned. And this prophecy comes during the time of the divided kingdom where God sent prophets to warn the northern, the, the northern kingdom. You need to straighten out. Stop with the idols or you're going to be judged. And I'm going to disperse you into the other lands. And so what had happened is that when God sent the 12 tribes after the exodus of Egypt into the land, they had express orders to get rid of all the inhabitants. Don't let them stay. This is my land for you. It's where I want you to live and live for me. But you got to get rid of all the pagans because they got terrible influence. Zebulun and Naphtali were two of the farthest northern tribes. And from the very beginning, you know, some tribes did better than others. Some of them actually drove them out, but later let them in. They never drove them out from the very beginning. From the very beginning, they were rubbing shoulders with the pagans there. And common commerce that they shared eventually turned into common marriage. And then they eventually just uh, turned, became more and more like the Gentiles in that land and less and less like they were when they first. In other words, they were a different people than when they stepped into that land because they allowed the inhabitants and their evil influences to be a part of their lives. Rather than saying, no, I got to get rid of this. It's too tempting. I can't take it. It's not honoring to the Lord. There are boundaries and lines. They just put up with it. They tolerated it and they weren't strong enough. And so by the time of Isaiah and by the time of Christ, this is known as a land of darkness. I mean, this is part of the promised land. No, it's a part of the darkness. And now there's no difference between the Jews and the Gentiles. Now they're all called Gentiles. Because they're not standing for the righteous law of Christ or God. Living by the Ten Commandments. That's how dark it was. As a matter of fact, these tribes were of the darkest. Because they even in, engaged in such heinous things as child sacrifice. Yes, God's people. You know, there's the syncretism of practices. They forsook their God. They worshipped other gods. They were not a light, though that's what they were sent there to be. And God's prophets warned them, but to no avail. And finally, they were driven out and that that area just kind of stayed in darkness and didn't get any better. But but in this time of dismal gloom, Isaiah, in the reality of it, Isaiah says, but there's going to come a time, guys, as wicked as this and dark as this area is. There is going to be a time where an incredible light is turned on and people that live in darkness will see this incredible light. How is that possible? That people living in such darkness and sin will see a light. It's because the day will come when Christ will step in time into that area and he is the light of men. You know, we live in darkness. Romans makes that clear. But God graciously gives us two little lights. Even though we're born in darkness, there's two little lights that God graciously gives us that shine just enough light on the existence of God. One is the light of conscience because we know Romans. Paul says in Romans, we know there's a God. 
Our conscience tells us and also the light of creation. You can't look at creation and not know that this came from something, he says. There's two little lights that God gave us. Uh, unfortunately, what do we do with them? We blow them out. Romans 1.21, for although they knew God, they did not honor him or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. The little bit of light that we have, we're so evil that we just blow it out, snuff it out. Because they love sin more than they love that light. They don't perceive they don't pursue it. So man extinguishes his only hope. And now he what happens when you live in darkness and what does sin do us? It's due to us. It's like leprosy. It just numbs us, our extremities. We can't see the reality of God in the kingdom of God. We don't know it's right here beside us. We can't feel it. We can't taste the goodness of it. We can't hear it when the word goes out just right over our heads. It's, we're oblivious to it. That's darkness. That's how sin works. It, it blinds us little by little until we can't even really see what we're doing and numbs us. And we don't even feel these warnings of God that he continually sends to us. And you know how it works. The first time we did something naughty with, oh, that was bad. I shouldn't have done it. But then when you do it again and then you do it again, you don't even feel bad anymore about it. And we just blow it out and snuff it out. These little graces of God, these little warnings of God. till it doesn't bother us at all anymore. Proverbs 2 says, 13 through 15, Who forsake the paths of uprightness to walk in the ways of darkness. Who rejoice in doing evil and delight in the perverseness. Men whose paths are crooked and who are devious in their ways. So man's situation is bleak. It is bleak. And into this dark abyss comes the great light, the dawn of light, Jesus Christ. And he is ablaze with truth. He's ablaze with righteousness. He's ablaze with the things of God. He's showing people this is God. And this is what this is the kind of king that God is. And this is the kind of a kingdom that God is establishing in the midst of this dark, dark, fallen world. And it is good. It's whole. And it's right. And it's pure. And it's true. This is from the bright morning star. So what Matthew is doing here is he's bringing out two very big realities by introducing us to this fulfillment of the prophecy. Two very real things. And that is one, the hopelessness of man. He's in darkness. And yet the incredible light and grace of Christ that comes in, walks right into the darkness. People were dwelling in that region. They lived there. They, they made their homes there. They just lived there. That's what you do when you dwell in darkness. You, you stay there. And yet Christ, fulfilling an 800-year-old prophecy, pierces that shadow of death. Because Christ is a life. Christ is the light. And Matthew wants us to know that the king is here. He wants us to see, hey, this is the king. The king is here. The kingdom of God is here. And this is the effect that he has on the world. Bringing light into darkness. John eight twelve. When Jesus spoke to them, he, this is Jesus' words. I am the light of the world. The world's in darkness, but I'm the light of it. And whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Jesus offers Light in exchange of darkness. 
He, he offers seeing in exchange of blindness. He offers us to feel again. Feel things that are good and right. The things that we've been oblivious to. He introduced us to the kingdom of God. And we can experience the kingdom of God right now in the midst of this dark world. By following the light. By worshiping Jesus Christ. And giving our lives to him. There's a, tr- a tremendous transformation and awareness that happens when we give our lives to Christ. I'll never forget the moment I gave my life to Christ. This new awareness, just like we sing about in the hymns, the chains fell off. All of a sudden I saw things that were there the whole time, but because I was so blind and caught up in sin, I didn't know it. I didn't know it could be so good. Simple things in life that we take for granted. With Christ comes the kingdom of God. And that light will warm us up to the things of God. That we have been missing. The light draws people to itself. So what Matthew is kind of asking or introducing us to here is, do you see Christ as this king? Do you see him as the light in this dark, dark world? And and will you follow him? Will you acknowledge him as king? And, And then will you follow this light? Will you walk in the light that he has brought into the darkness? That he has brought into your darkness, into your little piece of the world. And if so, to what extent? How far will you go with this king? How good is he to you? How, how lost do you think you are and how much do you think you need salvation? The powerful message of Matthew. Perhaps the Spirit of God is speaking to us this morning. And I hope and pray that the Spirit of God will show us the darkness in our hearts. And we will continue to walk in the light and not be like the northern tribes that just kept blocking it out and pulling the shades down and saying no thanks. Let us follow this glorious king. And may our lives show who we truly live for and worship in this day of great decay. May God bless the preaching of his word.